the executives do the day-to-day operational running of the business. They also need to think strategically and act strategically, but they are the ones thinking into the nitty-gritty of the day-to-day running of the business. Non-executive means you're not meant to be doing that. You're not meant to be interfering in the running of the business. You're meant to be helping with strategic guidance, challenging the executive's If you feel, for example, they're not being sufficiently ambitious about something, you might challenge them on that. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. I'm Ferina Hefti, and I believe that absolutely no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, amazing people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, which leads to gender inequality and the same stale, often male, middle-class people leading our organisations. I want us to change this together. In fact, I hope that many of you listening to this podcast right now will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus, which is all about supporting parents to get to senior leadership roles through equal career progression. In this episode, I have brought back Helen Gillett for you to the podcast, as she's been so popular in the previous episodes. Today, we talk about how to get a non-executive director role, what being on a board means, and how you can combine it with young children. Enjoy. A very warm welcome, Helen, back to the podcast. Delighted to have you. As this will be going out in a few weeks' time, let's remind our listeners who you are, what you do for work and who is in your family. So lovely to see you again, Verena. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm Helen Gillett. I am a non-exec director currently serving on the boards of two organisations. So I sit on the group board of a medium to large housing association called Orbit Group. And I'm also chair of the Governance and Remuneration Committee at Orbit. And I sit on a sub board that's broadly responsible for the service delivery to the social housing side of what Orbit does, because it also is a developer and builds homes for social rent and for sale. So that's one thing. The other thing is the Government Property Agency, which is a relatively recent organisation launched in about 2018, which has responsibility for the property and the future of property for the government with regard to government departments and the civil service workers within those departments. So it's almost easier to say what it isn't. It's not hospitals, it's not prisons, it's not schools, it's not local government. But it is all the buildings people think about perhaps when they go to a city that's well known for a particular department like Swansea with the DVLA or Peterborough with the passport office. Those buildings, if not currently run by GPA, will become part of the GPA portfolio. But most interesting to me is the strategy of the GPA, which is all about bringing the future of work for the civil service, which is this huge British employer, into a new and better place over time. So that includes fantastic environments for work. It includes thinking about location and community in relation to where people work. It includes thinking about having careers outside London. So the ideal would be that you can have a a highly successful senior civil service career and not have to move to London and with all that that might mean. So that's a fascinating one that I've been doing since earlier this year. I've been with Orbit for four and a half years and the GPA relatively recently. My family, 
my lovely family. So I'm married to Mark. And between us, we have three children who I hesitate to call children these days. Eldest is about to turn 24, which is a bit mad. And that's Lottie. And then middle one, Charlie, she's just about to start her third year, her final year of a physics degree. And then Elle, our youngest, she is going in. She's just back into year 11, the joy of year 11 and GCSEs. And then we have two dogs who take up a lot of my time as well. So (laughs) Bentley and Reggie keep me pretty busy, two working Cocker Spaniels who, if I don't give them plenty to think about, they come up with stuff on their own. And that's always a bad idea. (laughs) And just before we came on to air, we were talking about the future of work. This question wasn't on my briefing sheet, but let me ask you. Anyways, where do you see the future of work go? It's an enormous question, Verena. And I think the last three years have have really thrown so many questions behind that question up into the air. I would highly recommend any listener that is grappling with this, which is probably every listener, check out Bruce Daisley, who has done some really great work on this. And his podcast, which I think is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, he's a... as it happens, a former Twitter VP from years ago, but actually much more recently, he's done a lot of work around thinking about where work happens, why it happens in a particular way, in a particular place. And the reason I bring him up is what's been interesting with Bruce and his work, he wrote a really great book a few years ago about work as we understood it then, which was how to make really healthy work environments in offices, in effect. And it was definitely all the stuff people would be pretty familiar with about thinking about how to have effective meetings and how to manage your time effectively, but also how to create environments where groups of people could work effectively together. And to be fair to him, when COVID hit and everything changed, he went, okay, let's stop thinking about that. Gesture for podcast, not for, (laughs) I, I pushed it to one side visually. And he said, what do we do about this thing of us not all being together? And what does that mean? And how do virtual meetings work? And so over the last three years, he has really been digging into how organizations can and should think about the work that they need people to be doing in order to be productive. He's talked to a lot of different experts about that kind of stuff. And he's also fascinated and therefore really good at distilling what's happening out there in the world when large organizations, therefore statistically significant groups of people, are making changes. So, When some of the banks and then some of the tech companies started saying, oh, you all need to be back in the office after all, Bruce had some really interesting takes on this, which is a very long-winded way of saying, I don't know. But I do think that we can't, I mean, I'm going to say some really obvious stuff. We can't just assume that we're not going to need to keep thinking about this just because COVID seems to have done its thing. Because apart from anything else, we might find ourselves in a different but similar situation in future due to something else. So thinking flexibly is going to be really important. I do think we have to give real credence to the work required by managers to manage their teams and their people in a number of different environments, because it's not straightforward to just say, oh, people do better in the office when they're with other people. That's true in some cases and with some contexts. It's equally true that people can do really well at home, but also that that can be very isolating and that can be detrimental to career advancement depending on the the context. So for me, one of the biggest questions is how you train people to manage teams really effectively in a more flexible working hybrid, whatever you want to call it kind of space, because the way we've managed people previously probably isn't going to 
deliver great outcomes. And mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of other stuff we could probably talk about, but it's quite mm-hmm. a lot. A topic for topic a third podcast. To- <laughs> and I would definitely say I don't feel like I'm I'm almost more of an observer of this now as a non-exec than I am experiencing it operationally. And I think that's really important mm. because I don't anymore need to think about my team and who's in today and organizing away days and making sure I get time with people and, and one-to-ones and all that good stuff. But just because I'm not doing those anymore don't mean they're not happening for other people. And and I think one of the things I find interesting both with GPA and Orbit is this future of work stuff is very relevant to both their strategies. Mm, Definitely. But what is a non-exec director for those of our listeners who haven't come across the term yet? It's a great question. It's one of those things, isn't it? What What do they do? It's like, what's the difference between a solicitor and a barrister? They're both lawyers. So a non-executive director... If you hear people talk about a board of an organization, so recently, for example, there will have been stuff in the news people might have heard around the Nigel Farage banking thing with Coots and was it NatWest that owned them? So the CEO left, but also the chair. Who's the chair of the board? Well, the chair and the board are ultimately the accountable organization from the point of view of strategy and holding the chief executive and the executive body to account. So you can have executive directors of a business, CEO, CFO, possibly your chief operating officer might also be an executive director of the business, but you then have this term non-executive. And the idea of the difference is the executives do the day-to-day operational running of the business. They also need to think strategically and act strategically, but they are the ones thinking into the nitty-gritty of the day-to-day running of the business. Non-executive means you're not meant to be doing that. You're not meant to be interfering in the running of the business. You're meant to be helping with strategic guidance, challenging the executives. If you feel, for example, they're not being sufficiently ambitious about something, you might challenge them on that. Supportive also. So if the executive team come to the board and say, there's this issue and we've got some recommendations, we'd really appreciate more input from board expertise around that, you might get involved to that degree. So a non-executive director, it's a really interesting challenge. You probably only have maybe maximum of 10 board meetings a year, possibly fewer, possibly between six and 10, where a lot of the work happens that's visible. So you're in the boardroom and you're discussing issues and you're approving things and so on. But behind the scenes of that, You might have some committees that the board runs. So you might hear referred to things like remuneration committee. Remuneration is all about pay and reward and the principles around that. You might have, we should have an audit and risk committee. Audit sounds financial and it very much is about the finances, but actually it's looking at risk and audit across the operations of the business. And you might have other committees, depending on the work the organization does, So, for example, at Orbit, we have a treasury committee because a lot of the financing relating to Orbit is done through institutional banks and government grants. So we have this treasury piece. So as a non-exec, you'll probably do work within one of those committees, depending on what your expertise is. And as I say, you meet relatively rarely, but they can be pretty intense in-depth meetings. And your purpose is really to help support, challenge the executive team to deliver the purpose of the business. So if I think about Orbit, you know, our 
philosophy is very much about creating social values. So we have the social housing side of the business and we also have the development side of the business, but we're not a pure developer just looking to, you know, develop homes to sell to the highest price. We do a lot of development and a lot of regeneration around social housing. So there's a balance of commercial and purpose-led in that. And we need to make sure that we are steering the organization with the executive team to that end purpose. And what's interesting when you get involved in smaller organizations or organizations that haven't felt the need for a board, and that might be true of a startup or a scale-up, and you sometimes hear about this in the news, is a board is there to hold the executive to account. And we'd all like to think of ourselves if we were running a business that we would have always the best interests of that business at heart, the best interests of the people, the employees. But in truth, we're all human. And there will be times when as a CEO, you might err on the side of something that favors one over the other. And if nobody's going to question you on that, you can do that. That's up to you. But at a point in time where maybe you grow bigger and maybe you've got more stakeholders, maybe you shift into a market that's got regulatory side to it, where you're being held to account by an external regulatory body, that's when you need a board to be just looking and going, oh, okay, Helen, that decision you made about such and such a thing, what process did you follow to decide to prioritize that over this other equally important thing? And that's where the board comes in. And and again, you'll hear, I'm trying to think, was it Travis? I forget his surname, the guy at Uber. I feel like one of the founders of Uber, or maybe he was he was the guy that moved Uber from being a startup to scale up. And there was a big hoo-ha about this a couple of years ago in the States, because basically they turned out to have a really pretty rubbish culture, misogynistic and racist and a bunch of other stuff. And the board was trying, there were non-executives, there was a chair, they were trying to hold that executive team to account around the culture. And that's really hard, but you won't get anything being held to account if you don't have that overall board perspective. One of the things I'm a big fan of that sounds really dull, but is incredibly important in all of that is governance. And what I mean by governance is saying we have processes to oversee and agree and approve some of the big decisions this organization is going to take. What you often find is when organizations have hit difficult times, maybe it becomes scandalous, maybe they go out of business, you look underneath and you find that governance wasn't being particularly well adhered to. Things were happening without much oversight. Bright ideas were getting carried away with themselves And nobody was saying, hang on a minute, we've got a cash flow issue. Maybe we shouldn't be doing that thing over there. Maybe we shouldn't be opening a new office in that location. And a lot of things, and this is true of organizations like charities, where you you don't have non-exec directors, you have trustees, but they have a lot of the similar responsibilities. If you're not really scrutinizing what's happening in the executive decision-making processes and the strategic processes, If you're letting stuff just go through because it sounds great, you're running the risk of entering very choppy waters. Mm. And for you personally, what was the moment when you first thought about becoming an executive director? So 
I have a really privileged position, which is through my dad's side of the family, we are part of a really big family that owns or used to own the majority of Clark's shoes. So Clark's has been family owned since the beginning, since its founding nearly 250 years ago, I think. And up until relatively recently, the family owned 82% of of the, the company. And there was a structure in place to enable the family shareholders to kind of work alongside the board. There was professional management in place and a professional board in place, not purely family run. And I got involved in that kind of shareholder committee stuff. Massive privilege because I didn't have to apply. I didn't have any great assessment of my capabilities. I was just a helpful pair of hands in that that process. And that's, gosh, many years ago now. I did it for eight years. And in the time I was on that council and I was part of that committee, I got to know the clerks board really well. And I got to see what the non-execs did. Because I think this is one of the things when you're thinking about work that happens in places, finding out what goes on inside a boardroom is almost impossible in most organizations. You might be able to go along to the annual general meeting of, of a company, but then you're seeing the board on its very best behavior. Getting inside the boardroom <laughs> and understanding how those decisions are taken is nigh on impossible. And I so hence I say this word privilege because I was able to see inside the boardroom of a, a large internationally successful shoe retailer, shoe producer. It was really, really interesting to me. This, this was when I was working really hard in my job, my day job at BT. And I started to see how things that I knew and understood from my own experience, from my day job, were relevant, even though that sector was completely different. Like, I don't know anything about shoes other than what I like to wear on my feet. But I, my customer service background, my people management background, my leadership skills, my strategic thinking, all became really helpful. And that's when I thought, and I also didn't know, I hadn't really realized that people with a day job could also have a non-exec position. And I kind of thought, oh, okay, so maybe I ought to find myself a proper non-exec role. And that's where I came across Orbit and was successful in being selected. It can be really difficult to get into non-exec work because it can be quite chicken and egg. Most organizations are reluctant to take a risk on somebody who has no non-executive experience joining their board. So how do you get the non-executive experience in order to be acceptable as a new non-executive, it's tricky. And that's where my clerk's sort of context was really helpful because although I hadn't been a non-executive for them, I'd got a lot of relevant insight. And that's really fascinating. Now, I'll always think of you when I buy shoes because Clark's is my local children's uh, shoe store. So that's really, that's so funny. But obviously, you know, I have an agenda, which is I want more of the listeners to get to that very senior role. And I want more of the boardrooms to be less... uh, Obviously, they're wonderful white males, but just a bit more diversity. A bit more diversity would be good. Would be very good. So if anyone is listening to this, how do they know if they're good enough to even start the process of looking into this opportunity? So if they're questioning how good they are, they're already good enough is what I would say. Because an awful lot of people over the years have joined boards simply because their face fitted and they were asked to join and they were part of a kind of insular club of people who know people and network. And we know, we know this to be true. And, I, and I'm not talking the dim distant past either. What I would say, so a few things that were really helpful to me. One, I joined an organization called Women on Boards. It's really easy to find on LinkedIn. 
And they are excellent because what they do is provide you with a network of people who you can pick the brains of about how they've become non-exec directors. You can join it without already having a board position. That's part of the point is that you join it and they help you with the preparation of your CV, interview preparation, all sorts of stuff. There is a fee involved. It's not massive. I happen to think it's extremely good value. This is not a pitch, but I'll happily say this. If anyone's thinking of joining and they want a discount, let me know because I can put a, a, a referral through. But the reason the Women on Boards is so good is it opens that door to the boardroom and shows you what's inside. And what's inside is not for everybody. So you sort of need to think about what is it that I want from this? Why would it be interesting to me? And that's where your kind of qualification of the market comes in. What is it you would find interesting to spend a relatively few days a year involved in at the strategic level? And that can be the sort of thing that really unlocks the right boardroom for you. You also need to recognize that the sort of entry level might be an unpaid role. So an awful lot of board positions are actually unpaid. If you're going to be a trustee of a charity, that's pro bono. If you're going to be on the board of an NHS trust or a university or that kind of thing, that's pro bono. Relevant experience would include school governor. Absolutely would. And of course, that can be a bit of a double-edged sword. Anyone who's done school governor stuff knows it can be fascinating, but it can also be really quite tricky. And it's your own time given for free. So I think if you're thinking about what's within the boardroom that might be interesting to me, looking at the organization's purpose, I always say I'm less bothered about the sector. I'm much more bothered about what an organization is trying to do in that sector. So if it was retail, I'd prefer Patagonia over Primark because that shorthand just tells you where my values are. Saying that, if Primark turned around and said, how do we become as good as Patagonia? That would be interesting because then they're looking at some transformational purpose-led change. But it's whatever interests you. And I think the thing as well to think about, and this is where, again, women on boards is very good, is you will have transferable skills. It's just a question of identifying what they are. Mm-hmm. And at the time when you became your, had your first board role, were you already very senior in your day job or not so much? I would say ish. And I think that probably depends where you're standing as to whether some people have said, yes, very. To me, I didn't feel very senior. I was customer service director at BT and that was a big job, but I hadn't been inside the boardroom much at that point from the point of view of really understanding what goes on in there. I think there's also something about the only way boards are going to build diversity is if they are prepared to have people in earlier career stages join their board. Because Age is a diversity question. Too many boards are full of people who have more or less retired and they're brilliant. I work with a bunch of them at Orbit, but also over time, their operational experience will be less and less current. Mm. Their experience will still be relevant, but they will be less and less current as to what's really happening. That thing we were talking about, the future of work, my point exactly, I am no longer the person thinking about how as I would when I was CEO, thinking about how operationally we manage work for our people. I'm now an observer of that from within the board. And actually, a really helpful Mm. addition to a board is somebody who is less senior, but more experienced. So that's interesting. But you're telling me that a lot of the people are towards retirement age or not, not too far off it. 
what does that mean then for people with families? So I was a chair of trustees at Citizens Rice and I did it during maternity leave. So I actually breastfed my baby while chairing a board meeting, which went surprisingly well, but I don't think it was, uh, would be, we should repeat it, but that's a charitable board. And so, you know, everyone else was working part-time in that charity, even the CEO. So realistically, how easy is it to combine day-to-day childcare responsibilities with board stuff? I mean, I think this is where you have to get really practical and have a plan, right? So I would say you can do a full-time job plus a board role if you plan it properly. I would say you don't want many more than one additional board role if you're full-time. And that, and I'll get to the parenting and the childcare side of it in a moment. Well, I was really fortunate at BT that they regarded my work with Clarks initially, and I'm now trying to get the timing. I had left BT by the time I did Orbit, but equally Affinity, where I was, were happy for me to do Orbit because they regarded it as personal development for me as a leader, which it was, right? So it was super helpful. And so I was able to take the time needed for board meetings and so on in effect, his personal development. So like anything where you're looking for flexibility, you would need to have that conversation with with your employer and have almost a contract of here's how this is going to work. The good thing about board work is it's generally pretty predictable in terms of when things happen and where they happen because they'll have the year of meetings planned out. So you're unlikely to have the surprise we all need to be in X place on Y date in a week's time. That's unlikely to happen. So you need a plan and you need to think about how you would create the time. The time isn't going to show itself to you. You are going to have to make time. You know how people say, oh, I don't have time. I I never have time to do X. Of course you don't, because you're not consciously making time to do X. And that sounds easy and it's not, but you have to be blunt with yourself about it. I think from the point of view of the context for you as a parent is, again, It's going to vary organization by organization. And this is a recruitment process, just like you would go through for a job where it's you interviewing them as much as the other way around. So does this feel like the kind of organization where if I needed to, I could expect some flexibility? Does this feel like the sort of organization where my availability being constrained by my parenting commitments is going to be okay? And the only way you'll find out is if you have that conversation with them. You have to work out whether you can work with the chair. Are they somebody you're going to enjoy and respect working with in what can be quite a high pressured environment? So, yeah, it takes quite a bit of planning. You know, until you try, you don't know. Absolutely. And if one of your really good friends came to you and they were, let's say, at a senior manager type level Mm -hmm. and they said, oh, I've heard your podcast. What advice would you give to them about how to get to that board role? So one piece of advice to join a women on boards, they sound amazing. What else would you tell them to do practically? So practically speaking, I would say figure out what board you want to join, what sector, what purpose, what is it that because you will be asked. So I do quite a lot of recruiting for the boards that I work on. And I'm always interested when I'm on that side of the table as to, well, why do you want to join Orbit? And you need to have a compelling why, because it's a competitive market and somebody else will have a compelling why and they'll probably be as capable as you. So you need to be more interesting. So figure out, is it a charity you really care about? What's the reason why? That's really important. Work your network. Who do you know that is already on a board 
because it's one of these things where board roles do get advertised, particularly public sector. So if you're interested in joining the board of a public sector organisation, it will be advertised and you can find that on gov.uk. They have to, it all has to be advertised. Also do your research around which search firms specialise in which sectors. So I'll give you an example. There's a really great search firm called Saxton Bamfield, and they do a lot in the kind of third sector, public sector, that kind of thing. You've got Green Park. They also have particular sectors they specialise in. And so you can start to tune into where are these roles going to be visible to me? It's another reason, sorry to plug, it is a plug. It's another reason to join something like Women on Boards because they have a job board. What I would say is there's a lot of, when you look on LinkedIn, an awful lot of the non-exec positions are hidden as to what organization they are and what the details are. They are hidden behind these, I don't know how to describe them, these companies that charge you as a candidate and charge the hiring organization to let you know what the role is. And you can end up paying that. People pay a lot of money for that. And there is no guarantee that's going to get you the role. So I tend to avoid those. And make it known on your LinkedIn that this is what you're looking for. Think about how this is going to work from a career transition point of view. And be prepared to apply for a lot of stuff because it does take time. And do you need to know the sector? So, for example, if someone is working in banking and they're really passionate about the environment, Mm -hmm. do you need to know the sector or is it okay to apply without knowing the sector? Again, it's look at what they're looking for. So if they say, I flip that, if it's a bank looking and they want somebody with strong financial services experience, then you need that. You know, if they say it, then they mean it. If, however, it's a bank and banking is quite an interesting one, financial services the regulators recently introduced this consumer standard to banking. Actually, banks and building societies are looking for people with good consumer and customer service experience. They know their sector themselves. They don't need more banking experts. They need customer experts. So you could switch sector, absolutely, if you've got a skill, experience, expertise that is relevant to what they're looking for. And again, if I give myself as the example, I knew nothing about housing associations or development or any of that, but Orbit were looking for a customer service expert and that was me. GPA, I don't know anything about their world. I've not got a public sector background, but again, they were looking for kind of client customer and that's me. So it can be done if the organization that's looking has clearly said, hey, yeah, we're looking for non-sector expertise. And one thing I'm thinking of is, I know there's someone listening to this podcast who is from a working class background, who has done incredibly well, was the first in the family to get a good degree, but doesn't have yet a network of people who have been on boards or who've even tried to get onto boards. This is the type of person I would really like to apply and so get the board role. If you're listening, then yeah, go for it. But then on the other hand, we also know that social capital is so important. So is there anything that you've seen work perhaps with peers who've come from that background who managed to get into those roles? It's a really great question. And I would say, unfortunately, the boardroom is a place still where network matters far too much, far more than it should, right? And so what I would recommend is looking at the public sector where it's all advertised. They may still use a search firm, but 
it all has to be very, and as it should be, and as one would hope it would be, it all has to be transparent. For example, the other day I was looking, um, they're looking for the chair of the Consumer Council for Water. And that's there, that's advertised on the .gov.uk website, and it's really detailed about what they're after. And so what I would say to that person is, go looking in the places where it's visible and transparent what's happening. For the minute, if it's your first board role, don't try and break in to the toughest part of this market. Go looking where the doors are more easily opened, in fact, are already open. I would say the same about charities. And I would be prepared to, sorry, I'm just thinking through the order I would do this in. So go and investigate what's out there. I would also be prepared to reach out to, get in touch with some people who are on boards because you'll be amazed who you do know. They don't have to be on some FTSE top 50 kind of board. You will know people who are, just like you said, Verena, you did the citizen's advice. You will know somebody who is doing something in this space. Drop me a line. I'm really happy to help and mentor and sponsor people because I believe in it, because I believe we need more variety, more diversity, more depth in boards. And I think it's a case of it comes back to this thing of being able to distill your special source, the reason why you are great, why your skills are relevant, why you care about joining this board and telling your story really effectively. That's excellent advice. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I think we're coming to the end of this podcast. If someone is listening to this and there's only one thing they want to do, they might be pushing a baby in a pram, they might be running between meetings, have very little time, but is there something in five minutes that they could do to just get the ball rolling a little bit? Find out what board you want to join. You've got to start with that because this is different to your day job. This is not going to be the thing you're going to do straight away that's going to pay the bills. So this is going to have different parameters to your day job. So think about what would I be interested in? Where would I like to make a difference? What am I proud of in my background experience that I could really bring? And think about that from that sector and organization. You know, what is your version of I'd rather it was Patagonia than Primark? If you are interested in financial services, is it any bank or is it actually the building societies because of their ethos? Is it consumer banking or is it business banking? Is it insurance? Qualify where you see the most interesting roles for you because you can do all the work in the world about your CV and about your transferable skills and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, if you can't say in your cover letter, and then ideally, if you're lucky enough to be interviewed in your interview, here's why this for me and me for this you're not going to be successful. Thank you so much. And if people want to find out more about the things we discussed or want to connect with you, where should they go? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty much the only Helen Gillett, I think. You'll find me there. And go, to, in all seriousness, go check out Women on Boards. Go look at the free, the publicly available, freely available content that's on there. And yeah, don't sell yourself short. If you're questioning your capability and suitability for this, you're probably already there. Lovely to chat to you again. (laughs) That's my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. 
And thank you especially to everyone who's connected recently with me on LinkedIn. It's been so surprising how many of you have reached out and I really, really love getting your messages and I always accept your connection requests. And I love all your suggestions on where to take the show next. It's obviously a really hard work thing. It might not sound like it, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes to put out the podcast. And hearing that makes a difference to real life people is just really, really lovely. So thank you for that. If you've liked the podcast and if you like those themes we talk about and you actually want to connect with some real life people around them, then you should definitely consider applying to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme, which is a high impact programme supporting you to progress your career with little ones in tow. There is one programme left starting in 2023. Applications for that one close on the 31st of October 2023 and the details are on the website leadersplus.org.uk. You can also find info on some of our free events on there. And we always do have hardship fund spaces available. On the fellowship, you get access to really inspirational role models who have been there, done that, with bringing up kids whilst progressing your career. You get support with practical challenges, for example, workload management or saying no. You get really important time for yourself to think about what you want in your career, what you want for your family and how to make it happen together with a group of very, very supportive and very amazing peers and some very experienced facilitators as well. So if you want to look at it, then leadersplus.org.uk is the place to go. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the programme. And they're all involved in some shape or form in driving change for working parents. And I should say the satisfaction with work-life balance have gone up significantly as well. I think it's more than doubled compared to the starting point of the programme. So I'm really pleased with that. Big thank you for all your support and especially also to all of those who've left reviews for the podcast. It is such a helpful thing and I'm extremely grateful for all of you who've done that or who've shared this episode with a friend that could benefit from it. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your week.